Merry Christmas Eve, Eve, to everybody. We're glad that you're with us, especially if you're here for the first time or if you're in from out of town with family. We're glad that you uh, got drug along this morning. We hope that you enjoy your time with us. And those who are traveling and watching online, we're glad that you're with us as well. We hope that you have safe travels and a very Merry Christmas. Uh, we are continuing in our series this morning. I guess I should introduce myself. I'm Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. And along with Reagan, we co-pastor this worship community that we call Thrive. Uh, and so we are continuing in our sermon series this morning called Fearless, uh, where we have been looking at the Christmas story. And of course, every year we come back to this Christmas story and we try to get it in a different way. And this year we thought we would look at this story through these moments when God's messengers or God's voice speaks loudly and clearly and shows up in the lives of uh, Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and even the Israelites hundreds of years before. And their immediate response is fear. Or anxiety. And, and we know this because it either says it in the scripture or the angel says, don't be afraid. Right? Like the angel knows what's about to happen. Don't be afraid. And, and so many times we can reduce the Christmas story to this little peaceful nativity scene that looks nice and fits right on our little you know, piano or on our entry table or on our mantle. And, um, and we forget that it's actually a story that's wrapped up in fear and anxiety for the people who are living it. Um, that to get to the Christmas night and that sort of peaceful moment, there's a lot that happens before that moment, and there's even a lot that happens after it. So uh, this is not the last week of Fearless. We're going to continue in this series next week and talk about the fear experienced by the shepherds and, and what their story means for us. Today, we're going to look at the story of Mary. We're going to talk about uh, the angel's appearance to Mary, uh, the news the angel brings Mary, and her interesting response, because Unlike Zechariah or Joseph or others, Mary doesn't respond with the same kind of fear and anxiety. Uh, there seems to be this unique kind of peace about her, uh, and I want us to talk about why that is and what that means for our lives as we try to live lives that are a little less fearful and less anxious today. We're going to be working in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. If you've got your Bibles or your Bible app with you, you want to read along. Um, you can find it there. And before we read our scripture this morning, I want to say a word of prayer over our scripture. Again, if you're with us for the first time, we do that because we believe that these words are more than just words, that they are words to live by. They come alive when we invite the Spirit to be a part of this moment of scripture reading. And so we pray over our scripture and invite God into this moment together. So let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this day. God, we're just thankful that we have a place to call home that we can come to, gather with friends and family, and a family of faith. We can return to a story that maybe we have heard a thousand times, or God, maybe this is the first time we've actually listened. And God, I just ask that you would make this story new for us today. I ask that you would speak to us in a new way, or remind us of an old truth, that wherever you lead us, God, that that these words would leap off of the screens and off of the pages of our Bibles and into our hearts, that they might change the way that we live. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's read our scripture together. It says this, when Elizabeth was six months pregnant, so uh, last week we talked about Zechariah, so this is Zechariah's wife, you'll remember, uh, older in age, they kind of have an Abraham-Sarah thing going for him, and so Elizabeth is, is six months pregnant. God sends the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. 
When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She's like, oh, geez, an angel's here. What's this about? The angel said, don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. That sounds like good news, right? Mary said to the angel, how will this happen since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come over you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman who wasn't, who is labeled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. And then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. And then the angel left her. That's the word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. So um, I want to talk about this morning, I want to talk about two things in this scripture that leap out to me as being really important and relevant for our conversation today around this subject of fearlessness. And then I want to talk about one thing that's not in the scripture that I also think is really important and relevant in our conversation today around fearlessness. So uh, the first thing is this. I was in preparation for this sermon, so uh, I'll let you behind the curtain a little bit and, and see the Wizard of Oz. Um, so when, when preachers are putting sermons together, you know, we're not that smart right? Y'all know that, right? Preachers aren't that smart. Maybe you already knew that. You're like, that's not news to me, Scott. Um, (laughs) So we've got these books that we turn to frequently when we're trying to learn more about Scripture. It's not like we go to seminary and learn all this stuff and just remember it for the rest of our lives, right? That'd be really cool if that's the way it worked. It doesn't work that way. And so we've got volumes and volumes of books called commentaries. And this is someone who sits down and goes verse by verse through the Bible and writes little notes about every single verse in the Bible. You want that job? That sounds like a fun job, right? And um, there's tons of these out there, tons of these. And they all have, they range from, you know, commentating on the history of the verse or on, you know, cultural context of the verse or what this verse could mean for us today. And one of the ones I was reading this past week in preparation for this sermon, because we especially use these books when we're dealing with scriptures that we've read again and again and again. And sometimes you're looking at, how am I going to squeeze more water out of this onion, right? I just don't think I got anything left in this thing. And so you'll go and look for some inspiration. And thank goodness I I read a commentary this week by um, a pastor and a historian, a Methodist historian and and professor named Justo Gonzalez. Uh, He's Cuban-American. And um, he actually used to be a professor at Perkins um, and is very renowned, especially in the Hispanic theology community. Anyways, um, when I was reading what he had to say about this, um, he brought up the interesting point. Justo Gonzalez is is a professor, theologian that comes out of what's called the liberation theology movement. And this, this comes out of Latin America and then was adopted in African-American theologies in America and continues to expand into different areas as well um, from the mid-20th century. And, and liberation theology basically says that God's primary work in the world is to liberate. If you go back and you, and you read the stories of Moses all the way through the Bible, that, that God's primary function is liberation. When Jesus stands in the temple uh, at a, at, as a young man, when he's beginning his ministry, and he says, you know, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've come to 
release the captive and to give sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, right? right? So the liberation theologian says that God's primary work is liberation. And so looking through Justo Gonzalez's eyes, um, he said, here we have a young woman whose first question, her only real question uh, to the angel, of course, she first says, oh, is this good news? You know, but then once the angel tells her what's going to happen, what does she ask? She says, you know, Mary's pretty young, but she's been to health class. She says, I know how this works, right? Um, how am I going to have a baby? Because I'm engaged, and I'm a good girl, and he's a good boy, and, and we haven't done that? How's this going to work, right? And, and, and it can be kind of, we get a little bit of a chuckle. It can be almost kind of a humorous when we tell it today. Um, but I, I hear a tinge of fear in her voice. Do you? Because if you're Mary, you're a good Jewish girl, and you know what the Jewish law says, what happens to good Jewish girls who get pregnant before they're married. You may not know anything about Jewish law. You know how people who get pregnant before they're married today get treated. Right? I wish that we were more hospitable and loving and respectful and, and kind and, and uplifting to people who, who get pregnant before they're married. But we know that young women who get pregnant before they're married today, 21st century Dallas, Texas, it's not always a pretty picture, yeah? Now I want you to rewind the clock 2,000 years and go to the Middle East. And an angel just said, surprise, you're pregnant. Ooh, is that good news? If you're Mary, are you all of a sudden doing a flash forward in your head of what is my life going to be like? What's my son's life going to be like? Is my husband going to stay with me? Am I even going to survive this? And what Justo Gonzalez points out that I find really important is, especially in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is making clear that Jesus' life from the very beginning is going to be a marginalized life. That he'll, he won't ever have the option to have a normal life because he's going to be the child of an unwed young mother. And you can imagine how Mary was treated and Jesus was treated growing up in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. Imagine the looks that she got when she took him with her to the market to pick up food for her family, or imagine the comments she would get from nosy neighbors. Imagine all the awkward conversations her parents would have to have with their old friends that don't really come around anymore. He says that Jesus, from the beginning, is going to be a marginalized person. And Luke's trying to make that case because we know from last week, we talked about this too, that, that Luke's gospel, more than the others, is uplifting a Jesus who is here for the outcast, who is here for the oppressed, who is here for the marginalized. Now, I think that's an important word to hear for two reasons. Number one, if you're someone who you feel like you live life in the margins, maybe you feel like you've been marginalized in your life, maybe you feel like you understand what it's like to get those looks, to have those comments, to have friends that aren't friends anymore, to have family that isn't family anymore. If you know what that feels like, then you need a Jesus who can identify with that perspective, yeah? Because until you really understand that, it's hard to really say, like, you understand me until you've lived that. And I love that Justo says, Jesus lived that from day one. Jesus was a marginalized baby. He lived that from day one. He had a marginalized mother. But I think it's important as well for those of us, myself included, who, let's be honest, have not lived much of a marginalized life. 
right? I might be the most privileged person in the world. I haven't checked, but I might be, right? I live in America. I'm a guy. I'm Christian. I'm white. I'm straight. I got, what other qualifiers do I have? I got all of them, right? I rolled 87 Yahtzees when I was born, right? I've got the most privileged life I could find. My worst day is better than most people in the world's best day. Because I never have to worry about food, shelter, water. Am I going to lose my job because of who I am? Am I going to experience any sort of difficulty because of who I am? I don't have to experience any of that. I don't know what it's like at all to be a marginalized person. At all. And I think if we're being honest, there's a lot more people like me in this room right now. And not everybody. But I think there's a lot of us that, that if we're being honest, we live pretty comfortable life well within the margins. And I think it's important for us to recognize that when we worship Christ, especially on Christmas, we're worshiping a Savior who lives life outside the margins, who lives life in an oppressed place, in an outcast place, in a marginalized place. And what that means for our faith is that if we think we can pursue Jesus and continue being comfortable, we're kidding ourselves, right? See, Jesus being marginalized is really good news for those who are marginalized because that means Jesus is coming to you. Jesus is coming right where you are. Jesus is going to the leper colony. Jesus is going to meet the prostitute. Jesus is going to have dinner with the tax collector. If you live comfortably on the suburb, uh, you know, uh, cul-de-sac, we live in a non-through street. We get like two cars through our street a day. It's a nice house. Got an 18-foot tall privacy fence. Don't know why, but we do. If your existence is comfortable, it's, it's good news, but in a different way. It means that you need to find yourself to the margins. You need to change yourself a little bit. You need to discomfort yourself a little bit. If you think that you're going to find Jesus and not find yourself in the margins, then, then you're really kidding yourself. Jesus is born. This is the first thing I think this morning. Jesus is born into the margins, and if we're looking for the Christ child, the margins are a good place to start. You know, we just hosted everybody's Christmas here on Friday night, which if you weren't here, save the date for next year. We don't have a date yet, but as soon as it's up, put it on your calendar, be here. It's the best night of the year um, where we welcome in, um, this past year we had 450 uh, friends who are experiencing homelessness here in Dallas uh, join us for dinner, and an additional about 150 former incarcerated men and, uh, and their families and then an additional uh, several dozen people from various other outreach ministries. And we all had worship and dinner in this space. It was awesome. It was way too crowded, and it was amazing, right? Um, Jesus is at Austin Street Shelter. Jesus is at Genesis Women's Shelter. Jesus is at the low-income mental health clinic. Jesus is on the street corner Wondering if I'm going to stop and offer even a little bit of change. And as comfortable as my life is and as nice as it would be to remain in that comfort, if I'm going to pursue Jesus, I have to realize that I've got to get to the margins as a comfortable person. If you live a marginalized life, the good news is Jesus is coming to you. Jesus is meeting you exactly where you are. But brothers and sisters who are with me in the comfort, in the comfort zone, we've got to get out, especially on Christmas Day. Yeah? Y'all with me? This is not going to be a fun sermon, right? Y'all were like, this is the sermon before Christmas Eve, Scott. What are you doing? This is like, yeah, well, 
I promise, these first two points are a little uncomfortable, and then I promise we're going we're gonna to get some inspiration too. Um, but this is what God put on my heart this week. So let's talk about something else that's uncomfortable, yeah? My body. No. Um, <laughs> but kind of. So this morning, actually, one of our members was like, Scott, have you lost weight? And I can promise you the answer is no. Um, for like the last 18 months, the answer has been a consistent no. Um, so every, if you've come here for any length of time, you know that I have a love-hate relationship with my dad bod, yeah? And I'm really glad I had a kid uh, almost three years ago because before then I was just unhealthy and now it's a dad bod, right? And so um, I, I like that I can claim that and be like, no, 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 it's just because I have a kid. That's why I can't stop eating fast food. Um, and it's funny because, you know, there will be times I'll be like out to eat with some friends, um, and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, some guy will walk in, and he's clearly just gotten done with his CrossFit workout or whatever, you know, and he's wearing, you know, athletic shorts in January, and, you know, he's looking ripped to shreds, and he's got, like, calf muscles. I can't remember the last time I had calf muscles, right? Like, where, like, he's, like, walking, he's, like, pachow, pachow, and I'm sort of standing there, like, you know, oh, man, look at those calf muscles. I wish I had, man, I wish I could look like that. That'd be so awesome, man. What a great thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, what a size that, please. Yeah, go ahead and what a size that. Man, that would be so good to look like that. I would love to have, um, yeah, go, is, it, is the large a gallon of soda? Yeah, let's do that. Huh? Oh, and the fries are by the barrel. Yeah, thank you. Add one more patty to that burger, please. Yeah, yeah. God, it would be great to look like that, you know? So do you understand the picture I'm painting right now? Um, I talk about getting healthier as though just like talking about it and wishing for it is somehow going to make it happen. Like one day I'm going to wake up and not look as beautiful as I do today, right? Um, And yet, if we want to see actual improvement in our lives, if we want to uh, get to a place that's beyond where we are, it almost always takes some amount of work. Amen? So one thing I love about this appearance of the angel to Mary is, you know, we always remember Mary as the mother of Jesus, right? That when, we, when you think of Mary, the first, if I were to say, what, what is the role of Mary? Most of us would say she was the mother of Jesus. That was her, that's her, that's her primary role. She was the, the mother of Jesus. And yet her story begins, she, she ends this conversation with the angel by saying, I am the Lord's servant. I'm the Lord's servant. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. I'm the Lord's servant. That's, that's my position. And I think it's interesting, this is the second thing that jumped out to me. Mary fearlessly says yes to the work of God before she fearlessly embraces the fruits of God. She has to say yes, I mean, this is the way childbirth works, right? She has to say yes to being the Lord's servant before she can say yes to being God's mother, being Jesus' mother, right? And that kind of struck me. Because I, I think some of us, sometimes we get it twisted a little bit, and, and, and we misunderstand how the grace of God works. Now, in, in, in the Methodist church, we believe that God's grace works in essentially three ways. There's this grace called provenient grace, and that's like free for everybody. Everybody gets it. People talk about it like it's the chips and salsa at the Tex-Mex joint, right? It's free of charge. It's there when you sit down. Everybody gets it. Doesn't matter who you are, where you are, where you're from. You get provenient grace. It's just that, that grace of God that works through everybody, whether they know God, love God, anything like that. That's why we baptize babies. Then there's this grace called justifying grace. And again, God's doing all of the work, right? This is the, the work that God does that we just get to receive. And it's that moment of, of we call justification where you turn to God and you say, yes, 
you are my Lord, you are my Savior, I want you in my life. And then, you know, we have a baptism for an adult or a teenager if that's their moment of, of coming to faith. Or, or we remember a baptism if it's someone who was baptized earlier. But it's that sort of that moment of receiving or sometimes a series of moments of receiving God into your life and saying, yes, I want your work in my life. And then there's this grace called sanctifying grace. And this is like everything else in life, right? After you get out of the baptism pool and you, and you dry yourself off, that's when that work begins, right? And again, God is doing all of the work, but this time there's a little bit of a caveat. God is doing the work through us. And that's the part that not all of us love all the time, right? That's the part of me that is looking at the calf muscles and still eating Whataburger, right? And never hitting the gym. The, the, the sanctifying grace is the grace of God that says, I am here to work through you, but you've got to make some kind of an effort. How many times have, have you caught yourself, you, you, you meet someone at church, or you, you know someone in your life, and you're like, God, they are just so in touch with God. They are just the most faithful person. Like, their spiritual life is off the charts. Like, they just seem to be so in tune, and, you know, their prayer life is amazing, and, and they seem to know so much about Scripture, and they're just, they're so generous, and they're so peaceful, and they're so patient. They've got, like, all the fruits of the Spirit. They're like a fruit stand, man. They got, like, all of it, and they're just so good and so holy and so Christian, and, man, I wish I could be like that, and we don't do anything about it. I mean, I've done that so many times. Where I will like look at someone and be like, man, what an incredible Christian. And the next day when my, when my phone beeps at me to go, hey, you should read your Bible. I'm like, well, I'll prep for my sermon later, you know. Or when I wake up, instead of pausing and doing 10 minutes of prayer and spending that time with God, I'm sleeping in a little bit more. Or I'm off making coffee or I'm off doing something else. I think that the story of Mary reminds us that, that yes, absolutely, God's grace is at work in your life. There's nothing you can do to end God's grace at work in your life. There's nothing you can do to, to, to stop God loving you. I'm not saying that, but I am saying, if you want some calf muscles in your faith, right? don't go there. Um, if you want your faith to be more fully formed, if you want to have a more robust spiritual life, then sitting and waiting doesn't always get you there. There's something about the sanctifying process that requires us to go, I'm the Lord's servant. Put me to work. Let me do what, whatever you want me to do. And then see if something amazing doesn't happen as a result. See if those fruits don't begin to bear out because God will work through you and will work through even modest efforts, even modest efforts. Before Mary was the mother of God, she was the servant of the Lord. That spoke to me this week. And I'm trying to cut down on Dr. Pepper and Whataburger at the same time. Y'all pray for me. Y'all pray for me. I mean, it's resolution season, so it's, it's a good time to be thinking about this. So this is coming up. So as you're coming around your New Year's resolutions, what are some little things that you can do in the life of your faith to get you that next step? What do you need to shake up? What do you need to do differently? What do you just need to commit to and just say, you know, by golly, I'm going to wake up 15 minutes earlier just to spend that time with God. And I know some of you, the idea of waking up early and spending time with God is like the last thing you want to do. Like, God does not want to talk to me at 6 a.m. in the morning, you know, or whatever, you know, 5.45. Um, but just, just see, what it, see what it does if you actually shake things up and do things differently. All right. Here's the last thing, and this, this isn't in the scripture this morning. This is something that, that's outside. It's actually in between the lines, kind of. Because here's what's interesting. The, the angel leaves Mary saying, you're going to conceive a child. And then, um, and then the next verse is Mary showing up six months pregnant at Elizabeth's house. You're like, whoa, there's a good amount of story they're missing, right? Um, 
and so I want to talk about that, actually. It's weird that, that Mary conceiving Jesus, that like that moment is not actually written down in Scripture. Um, and and I, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. I want to talk a, a moment about uh, Saturnalia. If you don't know what Saturnalia, I'm probably mispronouncing that. Saturnalia, Saturnalia, don't correct me. I, I'll forget it again. Um, so every year around Christmas time, um, I will be on Facebook or on a different social media platform, and I'll see these memes pop up, right? And, and like, I have a love-hate relationship with memes, kind of like my dad bod, where, like, um, sometimes they're funny, and most of the time they're just kind of terrible, right? Um, and, and they just reduce ideas way too small uh, for the sake of likes and shares. And, and what I'll see is, um, I should say this first, I love atheists, right? I, I love really smart atheists, I do, um, because at least they're thinking about their faith. Like really uh, well-thought-out atheists I love having conversations with. In fact, if you go back to the history of the church, um, you know, atheism was a really there's a there's a th- a thread of atheism in all of theological world throughout the last several hundred years, and it was seen as a as a worthy pursuit in the realm of theology, sort of developing this theology of no God. You know, there, there's a lot of intelligent conversation and thought around that. I can't stand lazy atheism, though. Just like I can't stand lazy Christianity. I just really, I just can't stand it. And usually it comes across in the form of memes, because memes are the laziest thing ever, right? And, um, and I'll see this really lazy meme that's somewhere along the line, maybe you've seen this too, well, you know that Christmas isn't really a Christian holiday, it's really a pagan holiday, and, and Constantine, he made it a, he turned a pagan holiday to a Christian holiday, so read it, so bogus, man. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for catching me up on what seminary couldn't teach me over the course of four years and like $80,000. Thank you. Thank you for that meme. That was great. So um, I just want to like clear the record for a second about December 25th and Christmas because it's just bothering me and I promise I'm going somewhere that has to do with this sermon about this. But just follow me down the rabbit trail for a second. Okay. What they're talking about is the Roman emperor in around the year 300 was this guy named Constantine. And before him, Christianity was this sort of underground church, the Roman Empire. And then Constantine converted to Christianity, and it became the state uh, religion. And there's also this, this uh, Roman holiday that at the time coincided around December 25th that's called Saturnalia. And it was this big pagan festival. And, and there's this running thought that, oh, well, he switched Christmas that had been on January 7th to December 25th so it could line up and then they could continue to spread Christianity into the Roman Empire. Only problem with that is that about 200 years earlier, there was this guy named Hippolytus of Rome. You can look him up. And he wrote about Christmas. There are several others too, but his is the best record. He wrote about Christmas being on December 25th. Um, And there was this disparity in the early Christian church between January 7th and December 25th. Um, And what Constantine did is he formed this council to figure out a lot of important things. But one of the things they settled was that Christmas was going to officially be uh, celebrated on December 25th. Why December 25th? Remember, this happened before Constantine. Well, in those days, there was this prevailing thought that really important people, especially kings, were conceived and died on the same day, right? That was an important thought, that if you were a really important person, especially a king, you would be conceived and you would die on the same day. And you know what Jewish people are really good at in those days? They are really good at keeping lunar calendars. They are really good at keeping 
their history. And so they could go back and look at the exact day that Jesus would have been crucified. Because remember, he was crucified the day after Passover, right? And Passover is based on the lunar calendar. And they did all this work. They figured out even hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago uh, that, that Jesus was crucified on March 25th. And so if he was dead on March 25th and he was conceived on March 25th, if you add nine months to March 25th, what do you get? December 25th. Okay, now that's a lot longer of a meme. And so, um, <laughs> and so that's why December 25th became the, year that was, the, the, the day that was celebrated. Today, Christmas is celebrated on the 25th of December and also on, the, on January 6th because uh, Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't follow the Gregorian calendar, they follow the Julian calendar. And in the Julian calendar, December 25th is actually January 6th. And so that is the longer, non-meme-tastic version of why we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Aren't you so glad you came to church today? Okay. Why did I share all of that? For the streamers, someone just said, I don't know. As he spoke for the room. Um, so something else that people love to dog on, in addition to Christianity is a pagan holiday, man, is um, they love to dog on this song, Mary, Did You Know? My wife does. Several of her staff members do. Um, I, I, again, I have a love-hate relationship with this song, right? Because um, I think it's easy to, to poke holes in it. I also think it's a very powerful song, though, if, if you take it at what it, the message it's trying to communicate. Because people go, yeah, I mean, read the Gospel of Luke. She knew that she was bearing God's son. But I, really, really, what is that song trying to communicate? Did, did Mary understand the breadth and the depth of what this event was going to mean? You know, she was thinking maybe Jesus was some kind of king, a king in the line of David. Maybe he was going to be good news for the land of Israel. Did she really think he was going to mean salvation for the world? But then I, I pulled on that thread a little bit more after I went down this rabbit trail of when is Christmas. And I thought about this idea of Jesus being conceived and dead on the same day. And I wonder if Mary knew that day that she conceived Jesus would be not only one of the happiest days of her life, but would most certainly be the most painful day of her life as well. That about 33 years later, she would witness something that no one should ever see. And she would cry tears that barely any of us could ever even approach to understanding their pain. You know, a couple weeks ago, Reagan asked the question, if, G if uh, Joseph knew everything that was going to happen, would he still have said yes? Because Reagan pointed out that the angel leaves out a lot of critical information for Joseph. And I think she makes the point that some, and Reagan made the good point that, that, that sometimes we don't need to know everything because maybe we would be scared off. And maybe Joseph would have been scared off if he knew what signing up to raise Jesus would mean. But then I think about Mary. I think about this young woman so full of faith, so much more faithful than I am. And I'm twice her age, what she would have been. I think about her quick response of, I'm the, I'm the Lord's servant. Do with me what you will. And I think... What if Mary did know? What, what if she could have known that this was going to be the source of her greatest joy and more depth of pain than she could possibly imagine? And you know what I think? I think she would have said yes. Because the love that Mary has, not only for her child, but also for God. And see, we forget that. We, we love to typecast Mary as simply a mother. Mary had a faith of her own. 
Mary loved God more than just about anybody, as far as I can tell. And I think Mary would say to God, God, if your love is asking me to do this, I know the kind of tears I'm going to cry. And some of them will be happy, and some of them will be ridden with grief. And I'm still saying yes, because your love means that much to me. And your love is that powerful, and your love is that possible, and nothing is impossible with you, God. So I say, yes. I wonder, can we love fearlessly like Mary, knowing the breadth and the depth of the pain and the beauty and the joy and the sadness and the wonderfulness and the messiness and all that it brings? Can we say yes to the love of God like that? We don't need to reduce this season down to a nativity set. When I look in the eyes of Mary, I look in the eyes of a mother, yes, but I look in the eyes of a daughter as well, someone who understands what God's love is worth. And knowing everything, I believe she'd say yes. And I pray that I could too. And I pray that we could be a church who could say yes to a love that big. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks. We give you thanks for your love. We give you thanks for a love that is so much bigger, so much bolder, so much stronger, reaches us further than we ever could imagine. And God, quite honestly, there are days that we feel like we don't deserve it. How many of us feel like we deserve to hold the Christ child? And yet still you offer him to us. Your son, defenseless and vulnerable, crying, hungry, you offer him to us. You ask us to care for him. You invite us into a faith knowing full well that this life of faith will bring us greater joy and at times greater sorrow than we've ever known. That when we love something or someone as much as you love us, when we aspire to that kind of love, it'll take us to the peaks and the valleys. But God, you remind us that just like your love for us was not in vain, our love for the world and for your people will not be in vain either. That our love for you will be protected, will be respected. God, this Christmas season, as we prepare to receive the Christ child once again, would you remind us that we were not put on this earth simply to be comfortable, that just like Jesus found his way to the margins from birth, that we are called to go to the margins and to preach good news, to deliver good news to the oppressed and the captive and the downtrodden, to discomfort ourselves for the sake of your kingdom. God, would you remind us that this season we are called to say yes not only to the fruits of your love, but to the work that your love inspires us to do as well. 
And God, this Christmas season, would you draw us back to the simple truth that your love is big enough, your love is strong enough, and with your love, nothing is impossible. In your son's precious name, amen.